morning, everyone. Good to be with you. Um, everybody enjoy summer yesterday? And winter has returned. But our hearts are warmed, right? By the presence of old friends this morning, having Melissa Barris here. I know it's already been mentioned, but i got to mention it because, you know, we as a church community, uh, we, we're not gratified by, you know, Excel spreadsheets that say this amount of people is in the building at this given time, and, you know, this is what the bank says is in the account. Like, this is about our relationship with the Lord and our relationship with our brothers and sisters, the people of God. So what gives us joy is when the family is together. And uh, to have Melissa here who led worship for us for many years, her husband who was with us before I was even with us over 12 years ago, who was a foundational part of this church community. have Ernest here who's leading guitar, who led guitar for us for over a decade. Uh, There is no greater joy. And the joy is just extended knowing they're all invested in the body of Christ at Calvary West Grove doing incredible things. But grateful they are here with us this morning. Grateful the youth is with us this morning, as Brian said. I'm going to be with you guys on Wednesday. I've got to work on that sermon. A um, little stressed about that. We'll see how it goes. Guys, we also had a State of the Church update this last week on Monday night. It took place online. I want to invite you, if you haven't seen that, to go online and watch that. It's really important. Now, if you're just into religious entertainment on a Sunday, you don't need to watch it. If you're just here for an experience on Sundays, you don't need to care. But if you're invested in this community, this is your community, you want to see the city of Huntington Beach transformed, you want to see Orange County transformed, you want to play your part in the story of what God is doing, that's an important update for you. And I would hope that everybody's in that latter category, that we actually want to see, you know, ground taken for the kingdom of God through our combined efforts. So I talk about, you know, what's going on in the finances, what's going on in the various ministries of the church, like our youth ministry, what's our future in the senior center, somebody asked me about. I answer those questions live. So I want to encourage you, take a night pause for just an hour from the, you know, meaningless Netflix entertainment. Let's be honest with each other. You're going to watch like five episodes anyway and binge it. Just watch four and then also watch the state of the church because it's meaningful. It has to do with what's really going on in the city in which you're embedded. Let's open up here now. Revelation chapter 19. We are in this series of Revelation. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand and one of the ushers will pass one to you. Last week, we looked at the judgment that would befall Babylon the harlot, the epicenter and city center that exported idolatry and immorality to the rest of the world. And God, you know, we saw in this message, is going to bring about a time when spiritual evil is going to be allowed and and commissioned to sort of melt down and to tear itself to pieces, starting with its cultural center. And there will be those that mourn, those who got their luxuries and excesses from Babylon, and there are going to be those who praise God, who celebrate, because justice is finally being done against all those who conquered and slaughtered and ruined the earth and came against God's people. Now this week, as as we turn the page, I said, you know, I would be slowing down. But I was one week off. I was wrong. I got a little too excited about kind of settling in. This is exactly the opposite of what I said it would be. Though we only have a, a chapter and a half, this is among the most contentious and debated and confounding of all the chapters in Revelation, and yet its promises are very rich for every believer. So my goal today is to make as much sense of this as I need to make of it, 
so that we can get to those rewards. Let's read together, starting here. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John writes, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and the riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pause there this morning. Like I said, I'm not slowing down. Now you know. This passage we're studying today follows this sequence of final judgment events that began in the bowls of wrath detailed in chapter 16. 
In the sixth and seventh bowls of wrath, God employs the dragon and the beast and the false prophet to gather the kings of the world for one final battle of Armageddon. The battle begins as a civil war against Babylon, the harlot, the city center in chapter 17, which we read about last week. Then we have in our reading today the second coming of Christ. His appearance as this holy, conquering king leading the armies of heaven into battle against the unholy alliance of the earthly kings, which are really just a tool in the hand of the beast and of the false prophet. Jesus first destroys the idolatrous and immoral world system and its final manifestation in the beast, that Antichrist, along with you know, the false ideologies and false teaching and false prophecy that is summed up in the activities of the false prophet, and both are thrown into the lake of fire. And the birds of the air feast upon the dead, that is, all those who are also slain of the world who followed the activities of the beast and of the false prophet, that is, all the kings and the kingdoms of the earth that come against God. All the facets of spiritual death operating in the world, the empire with its politics and economics and its false religious system and those ideologies and those lies that empowered them and the people that participated, they all lay exposed in the battlefield that has turned into a graveyard of evil. I know it's very graphic stuff, but it's like the world is being declared cancer-free. You know, these are the elements, these are the enemies of all that is good and all that is godly being laid to waste. The enemy of life, of God's kingdom, is being destroyed. Now, all would have been very clear and square nicely with the rest of the New Testament texts about Jesus' second coming if John had just also seen Jesus do away with Satan at this point. You know, if he just did away in the battle of Armageddon here with the beast and the false prophet and all the kings and that unholy alliance in the world, and then he just said, you know what, let's just clean house. Let's just finish this whole deal. Let's throw Satan in there for good measure. Let's raise the dead and bring judgment. That would seem to line up with everything else the New Testament indicates. But instead, John saw Satan bound in the abyss for a thousand years, the millennial period. And God's people, or some think a portion of God's people, are raised to reign with him before Satan is released and allowed to see the nations yet one more time before his destruction in the lake of fire. And then the rest of the dead are said to be raised, and there is the final judgment. The millennial reign of Christ. The millennial reign, one final inclusion, one final gift to Christians to divide over before the Bible finishes. It's like, just one more thing we needed in there just before it's done. And, you know, what do we make of it? How do we make sense of it? Well, guys, it's fortunate that I have a YouTube account under the handle Armageddon Andy, and it covers about 100 hours of content in the book of Revelation. We also have a bookstore where you can buy pamphlets where I lay it all out. It's very large, the pamphlet. Now, you guys know I'm joking. The fact is, as we look at this, we've got to face that there are different ways to see this. Imagine that. Imagine that. There are valid, different ways to see this. I know that can be hard to believe. Maybe you don't hear that very often. But believers look at this different ways. Some see Jesus returning and reigning for a literal 
millennial period. It, you know, like, like it reads. It, it, you know, here it is on the surface. Jesus is second coming. He's here, and he's going to reign and raise a portion of his people or all of his people to reign alongside him, and it takes place over the course of 1,000 years. And that on its surface is the simplest reading of Revelation. You know, some see Jesus as reigning now and us raised to reign with him upon death. That there's a resurrection that occurs when we die as believers and we already join with him in a spiritual sense. You see, the souls of those who were killed for the kingdom of God, they appear in Revelation chapter 6. You know, they're crying out for justice. They're awaiting their bodily resurrection. And they would say also that this, you know, condemning Satan into the lake of fire, that's all part of the battle of Armageddon. The sixth and seventh bowl, it's retold in the condemnation of the beast and of the earthly kingdoms and of the false prophet. And the same is just being demonstrated here again in Satan's judgment. And that appears to be the easiest way to relate this to all the other New Testament texts. And then third, some see Jesus returning after, you know, this period of increasingly, you know, the world is manifesting the kingdom of God. And there's this period of time where the gospel goes forth with such success that essentially Jesus is reigning. He has spiritual rule and reign over all the world for a thousand-year period, and then he returns. And, and wouldn't that be a nice thought? It doesn't really square with you know any of the texts, I would say, but you know, I like it. You know, I, I would only wish that the world would just become more and more and more Christian, and then Jesus returns. You know, God bless all you optimists out there. You know, all these various viewpoints, they have their terms to describe them. Premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial. Each view has its logical and interpretive challenges, and they all have their associated strengths. And I can debate you. I can debate you on whichever one seems like the perfectly constructed system for your understanding of Revelation. Believe you me, I can debate you. And I'll bet you can respond to me intelligently and passionately with every point that I present to you. And if you want this morning, I can take us through all that and waste our time talking about talking about the passage. You know what I mean? Like I can go, well, here's this group of people that thinks this way, but here's why you shouldn't think that, but here's why you should think that, but there's this other group, and here's what they think, and here's why you should think that, but not think that. I can talk about talking about the passage, and ultimately we miss what the passage is about. For my part... I'm going to glory in keeping my mouth shut and not adding anything to the discussion if the fruit of it is division and pride. You might say to me, how can you glory in not adding anything to the theological discussion? You're a pastor. That's your job is to add things to theological discussions. Theological discussions, discussions about God are positive things. That's the sort of thing that we should be having in the church. You know, when I say that, I mean it in the way that Paul says something interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this in verse 13. He goes, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, not that baptism is bad. Baptism is a good thing. That's our entrance into, you know, the faith community and all that. He's not saying baptism is bad, but if it becomes a means by which believers are dividing over human leaders and not uniting under the name of Christ, then it's not serving its purpose that Paul was the one baptizing any longer. And if I spend all my time, you know, adding to the discussion or reaffirming this voice or that voice in the discussion over the last couple thousand years to the point where it gets you to think about things through the mindset of that person, 
over and against the other people who are trying to faithfully interpret this text, and I've led us away from that unity that we have as followers of Christ alone, then it isn't useful. And guys, that's been the gravest wrong of all in the study of Revelation, I think throughout Christian history, for men and women through history to be lifted up for their view of disputed parts of the Bible to the division of Christ's whole and one body. We strain out a gnat of truth. You know, I can go through those hundreds of hours on YouTube to try to strain out a little bit of truth for you, only to swallow a camel of pride and disunity. And we have a history of celebrating such behavior through church history. Lord knows I won't be in the history books for any special thoughts. Nobody's going to be making a movie about me, and you and I will be all the better for it. Now, having said that, what do I actually think? You know, because I'm not adding anything to the discussion, but you're still probably thinking you laid out a couple different views. You know, you don't need to add anything to the discussion. At least tell me what you think about this whole thing. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't want to know. You say, how could you not want to know? How could you not want to know the truth of the Scriptures, the glorious victory of Christ, and all the ins and outs involved in that? You should know. When I say I don't want to know, I don't want to know in the way of pursuing knowledge for its own sake. Paul says this again in the same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Does me thinking, I know how Christ is going to do the job that only he can do, change anything about how I live? Does me thinking, I know how Christ is going to do the job that only he can do, change anything about the way that I live, about my obedience, about my role, say that now I think I know how Christ is going to do his job that only he can do? So no, I don't want to know something in the knowledge that puffs up. I want to know as I ought to know the things that undergird my humility, my dependence, my love for God and for His people in all their variety of their perspectives. When I know as God wants me to know in humility, I read Revelation 19 and 20 in humility, I receive its heart, and I see Christ, the rider upon the white horse, whose name is Faithful and True. I see his defeat of the world. I see his ultimate defeat of Satan, the deceiver from the beginning. And I see his perfect judgment over every soul as he calls every person to account before his great white throne. Hallelujah! Praise God, right? How in the world could our ultimate victory in Christ, the thing that unites us the most... The thing that you know, includes us the most and includes all of us together the most and gives us the most confidence and the most joy, how could that be perverted and changed into something that divides us? How could that be turned into a tool by which we're deceiving one another, twisting this into a source of contention? And we're receiving this as a gift. You know, it's not even us executing it, but yet we want to divide over it and contend about it when it's just ours to receive in humility like beggars. Oh, the riches, right, of God's mercy and grace to take us beggars and children, unruly children at that, and turn us into rulers alongside His Son. That's the grace and mercy of God. 
You know, everything I just mentioned about what I see in the overall picture of Revelation 19 and 20 is what I believe the early Christians would have seen. That's what they would have walked away with. They wouldn't have gotten into all this other stuff. It's what God wanted them to see when he gave the visions to John. You know, in context, I've reminded you a couple times of this. Here we have the Apostle John on an island of exile by the Romans because he has said, his testimony is that there is a God and ruler above all, including Caesar, who is only a man. And it was true. The testimony of John was true. Caesar was only a man. But you know how he got treated? He got thrown in prison. He got thrown onto an island of exile. His compatriots, they got executed. They got beheaded. They got killed for speaking the truth. And that's what happens in the world. And here are the early followers of Christ alongside John who are believing in this resurrected King Jesus, who are experiencing in their own way the same troubles and tribulations and suffering as John is on that island of exile in this world. And they're going, where is Jesus? Where's our victory? Where's the fulfillment of every promise from Genesis to Exodus to Ezekiel and Isaiah and the book of Daniel? And the message of Revelation is he's coming. He's coming. Satan has already been cast down in Revelation 12. It was declared. We already have spiritual victory over sin and against his deceptions through the cross. We are presently overcoming the work of the beast and the false prophet, as well as their works in the world, the works of the dragon through our patient endurance and our faithfulness to the name and to the way and to the word of Christ. And he's coming. He's coming to defeat the beast and the false prophet and all the enemies of righteousness. As 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 says, when he arrives, he's going to defeat the beast, the Antichrist, with the breath of his mouth. Oh, it's gone. He says he's going to defeat the beast. He's going to defeat the Antichrist with the splendor of his coming, with the radiance. It's like the afterglow of Jesus when he shows up is so powerful, it's going to destroy evil. And we'll get to taste what the world would be like when our victory isn't just spiritual in heaven, but when it's manifested upon the earth. And then we get to see Satan mustering every last bit of evil influence he has in the world, gathering every last bit of his energies from across the breadth of the world, surrounding God and his people with a force that's like the grains of sand on the seashore. Scientists estimate that there are 75, put 17 zeros behind that grains of sand on the seashore. It's innumerable. It's a number more than you can possibly fathom. That is the resistance that Satan puts up in this final battle surrounding God's people. And chapter 20, verse 9, says they are consumed in an instant. Those innumerable armies surrounding God's people all around. More than the grains of sand on the seashore, it's in an instant they're consumed. And Jesus takes his final victory further and shows us a world not even known before the curse of Genesis, a world without Satan, as the devil himself is cast into the lake of fire in verse 10. Satan, whose deceptions have been throughout the entirety of the Bible, who've been throughout the entirety of world history, is removed, is eliminated in a single verse in the Bible. 
I mean, it's almost offhand. And then, yep, he's thrown into the lake of fire. Can I get an amen? Right on. I mean, what we're left with, the impression that we're left with, the picture that we're left with here and throughout the book is Jesus is shown to decisively fulfill every prophecy regarding the end of time ever recorded in the scriptures. He fulfills every promise from Genesis to Exodus through Daniel, through Ezekiel, through Isaiah, through Zechariah, all the prophecies. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the resurrection and the life. And all will be raised before him to a glory to be revealed in the next chapters or they'll be raised to enter into the lake of fire. That final judgment scene is a powerful scene. It's the one of greatest relevance for all of our lives throughout the course of this book. As the dead are raised, great and small, you know, those we would call important influencers, those who were small, those who were insignificant. There's so many, you know, nameless people in the masses, people who barely even, you know, leave their homes. All of them are raised. And books will be opened before Jesus' great white throne of judgment. And all will be judged, it says, in chapter 20, verse 12, according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Not what they thought about Revelation 19 and 20, but as always, they are judged according to what they did. This is just like Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, the parable of the sheep and the goats. When Jesus returns, he's going to separate one from another, the sheep from the goats, and one is going to go entering into life, and one is going to go into destruction based on what they did. You know, if they visited those in prison, if they gave drink to those who were thirsty, if they fed those who were hungry, if they tended to those who were sick, if they let in the stranger, Jesus says, it's as if you did it. You did it for me. Now enter into your reward. But if they failed to do those things, if they didn't give drink, if they didn't give food, if they didn't clothe the naked, if they didn't invite in the stranger, if they didn't tend to the sick, they didn't visit those in prison, Jesus says, you didn't do it for me. You did or didn't do it for the rider on the white horse, for the one who sits on the great white throne, this King of kings and Lord of lords. And as in that passage here in Revelation, it's about what was done, not just our confessions, but what was done, because what we do reflects what we believe. It's through grace and faith in Jesus and his work on the cross as a grace by which we believe we receive salvation. That's a gift. We couldn't earn it on our own. But what we believe is evidenced in what we do. So there are recordings of what we've done to reflect what our confessions were worth to us. And we, everyone ever alive, will either be cast into a lake of fire or we will find our names written in the book of life. You know, I'm struck with many things as I consider chapters 19 and 20 here in the book of Revelation. I have a few statements to make on the other side of this study. Number one, I want to assert this. The divide over the unity of Revelation is to lose the war we've won. To divide over the unity of Revelation is to lose the war we've won. Revelation depicts the complete union of God's people with God forever. I mean, that's the ultimate landing place 
of the book of Revelation that we get to glory in here for a few more weeks. All of God's people, everyone whose name is written in the book of life, coming together with each other and with God forevermore. And if that isn't what we do with this book, point to that reality, then it's like we're taking bandages to strangle each other. We're using the tools of our health and healing for murdering and killing each other. Why would we make ourselves lose when the whole point is that we have won, and we've won decisively so, and it's not us who have won, but it is Christ who has won on our behalf, and He's sharing that victory with us as a grace and a mercy. I'm weary. I'm weary of what we've made of our theology, what human beings have said about the Word of God. I am weary of the idolatry that exists around religious leaders and how little they have done and do to dismantle that false idolatry. We are renewed by the Word of God as it is. We are renewed. We are brought together. We are united when we exalt the name of Jesus. Let us quit trading away our precious and eternal union for petty and useless divisions. Let's quit lifting up the names of people who did not get crucified for us. Save the name of Jesus that unites us all together forever. Secondly, Jesus' victory is meant to embolden us for today. You've got to understand what the whole purpose of this book was for. It's meant to give courage. It's meant to give you the energy for that patient endurance. It's meant to embolden you for today. I simply cannot understand how Revelation has instigated a backing away, a cloistering off, an escapism from the world, a fear and anxiety, an obsession at times with world events by Christians. When to me, this is the most emboldening book in the entire Bible to get us to live for the kingdom of God in the here and now. It calls us to lean into the work of God right here right now in the world, to stand up and out for the name of Jesus, to be undeterred and to look past the world events and headlines of today, to live absolutely devoted to the only cause that is going to live on. What's going to be recorded in the books about our lives? Is it going to be most of what's happening in the world today? It's going to involve reflecting the life of Jesus, what we did or didn't do in alignment with his example and the furtherance of his kingdom. So if that's all that's going to go on into eternity, this book is saying, live for that. Put all your chips in that basket. Be courageous. Be emboldened. It emboldens us to stare the beast, the false prophet and the dragon in the face, and say, you are finished. You're finished. The radiance of his glory is going to destroy you. Just the glowing after effect of Jesus is enough to consign you to the lake of fire forever. There is no reason for fear, is what this book says. Because there is no threat. And there is no loss. The world and all the experiences of the world cannot threaten me because it cannot take anything from me. I have nothing that can be lost because Christ has won it for me. Therefore, I do not fear. Are you afraid? Do you feel threatened in the world today? What is it you think you can lose? And if you can't lose it, then why do you feel threatened and why are you afraid? Read 
revelation yet again. Throw the next thing at us in the world. It cannot change the end. It can only serve to increase our reward. The greatest reward of which is to find our names written in the book of life. Long and live to see your name in the book of life. My daughters are, my twin daughters are five years old. And they're just learning to read and to write. And the first thing they learn how to write is their name. And I've been doing their homework with them, and I see them write their name on the top of that piece of paper. And when I read this this week, I thought about how much I long to see their names written in the book of life, to see my name written alongside their names in the book of life. When he sits upon his great white throne, what you think about me, what the world has thought about me, what my wife and what my kids and what my friends have said about me is not going to dictate what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords says about me. You say, what did you do, Andrew? Did you believe in the gospel? Did you believe in my work upon the cross? Did you love me like I loved you by loving all of my children? Did you patiently endure in this world? Did you put on the white robe I gave you at the cross? Did you do what I did? Think of the joy for those who, whose names are written in the book of life when they see their names written there. Think about that. Being before that great white throne, those whose names are written in the book of life, when they get to see, it's there. The joy, the promise, and the mourning, and the indignation for those who are consigned to the lake of fire. If you don't know where you're going, it's the good news. Repent. Change your ways. There's an opportunity. There's a window. There's time. You're alive. Believe in Christ. Believe in the grace and mercy that was won for you on the cross. Be filled with God's presence. And choose to walk in His ways. You will share in the heavenly gift. You too will share in the heavenly gift. I want us to receive these promises, these blessings in this book in a time of prayer right now in worship. Would you pray with me this morning? Jesus, we just want to begin with praise. Praise to you. You are the rider on the white horse whose name is Faithful and true. We are so used to the failure of human leaders in this world. Unfaithful. With lies. Yet you, Jesus, are the fulfillment of every word ever spoken in the Scriptures. You are every prophecy coming true. You prove yourself. You are the embodiment of 
the Word of God itself. And you're coming to establish your victory, the heavenly victory already established, victory upon the earth, victory in a brand new creation, a glory that we can't even fathom. And you'll do it effortlessly. Effortlessly. All the forces, the spiritual forces, the physical forces of evil consumed in an instant. Satan, the king of all deceptions, gone in a moment. Lord, therefore, we do not fear because we trust you. There is no threat. There is no loss. All that's going to be lost are the things that are wasting away with this world, not the things of your kingdom. So, Lord, embolden your people this morning. Give us courage. First, that we would not use the unity one for us and for all eternity as a point of division. How opposite that is to what you achieved. For us to give up a victory that is rightfully ours as brothers and sisters in your kingdom. So Lord, let us cling to the unity won for us and for all time through what you did upon the cross, through your lordship. We're not going to lift up human beings. We're going to lift up the name of Jesus, and we're going to be brought together. But Lord, embolden us not just for unity, but for your purposes in the world. If this is all that matters, if this is where everything is headed, if it's all about books being opened and our lives being recorded and what we've done, then let the lives that we've lived, the lives that we're living, let the testimony in those books speak you. Speak what you would have us do. Speak your life to the rest of this world. God, I pray or work of your Holy Spirit beyond what words can convey that you would stir your church to put everything upon this moment. That we would be the people who have loved your people in response to your love, who've served you by serving others, that we'd leave no deed left undone, that we'd walk and follow the Lamb wherever you go. God, embolden us, encourage us, strengthen us. Your victory is assured. Your victory is our victory that you've shared with us through your grace. We long and live to see our names written in the book of life.